Amen. Great. Well, as Rob says, we are uh, continuing our series. Uh, we're actually in the final session of our series on finding joy in the book of Philippians. It's been on quite a journey, hasn't it? We've had, uh, what is it, 10, 11 weeks now going through this quite short book, but it's packed with challenge and encouragement. In fact, that's basically the feedback we've been getting is that, yeah, it's been a really encouraging but also challenging series. And um, I guess that's, that's kind of a good sign. <laughs> we want to take those challenges on board, though, don't we? And we want to live in the good of what God is saying to us. Through this series, we've seen how joy can and should be the hallmark of every believer. That in itself is quite a challenge. You know, through the good times, yeah, but also through those difficult times, through the times of plenty and in the times of need. Thank you. Through those times of conflict, as we were looking at the other day, and through times of peace, we can know joy because it is not rooted in our circumstances, but rooted in our God. You know, the church, the universal church, should be characterized by celebration and rejoicing and delight in our God. That is what our character should be. Joy is our distinction. Why? Because, because we have learned the secret of what contentment is, as Joe was sharing the other week. We know the secret. It's in him. We, we can know contentment because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, who enables me by his spirit to live this life abundantly. That is what God's heart is for each one of us, not just to get through. When we look at Paul's letter here to the church in Philippi, there's no sign of him just getting by. His circumstances are shocking. But he, you know, what he's modeling, I think arguably, he is experiencing fullness of life, fullness of joy. It's amazing, isn't it? And this is the life we are called to. That's exciting for me. That's really exciting. And we see in our passage, if you've got your Bibles, do turn to uh, chapter 4. I'm going to read the final section uh, from verse 14 onwards. But we see that Paul continues to be a man full of joy and, in fact, full of gratitude. You know, as Paul signs off, he is basically thanking the church for their incredible financial gift that they've given him. You know, who here knows that a thankful heart is a joyful heart? If you want to be more joyful, cultivate a heart of thankfulness. It's really key, you know, it's often said, isn't it, it's to develop the, what is it, the attitude of gratitude. It's a really key thing. Thankful heart is a joyful heart. And here he is, giving thanks to this church for their incredible generosity to him. And so this is what we're going to look at this morning, the joy of generosity. And you're like, well, that's a strange thing to end this letter on. He's going to be talking about money. But actually, it is so important. This whole subject of living a generous life, it is key to living a life of joy, as hopefully we'll see as we go through this this morning. You know, in one sense, this whole letter to the Philippians is one big thank you letter. 
It's to be sent back with Epaphroditus to the church, thanking them for this generosity and supporting Paul in these difficult times. So if we read from verse 14 of chapter 4, remember he's just come out of a whole section of talking how content he is. He's learned the secret of being content in any and every circumstance. He goes on to say, yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. There is massive joy to be had as we steward our God-given resources well for God's glory. You know, Paul is, is full of gratitude towards God, but also to this church. And he pinpoints three key reasons why. And we're going to look at those three this morning. Firstly, generosity, their generosity demonstrated partnership. It demonstrated partnership. In this financial gift, they were saying to Paul, we are with you in this. Your troubles become our troubles. Your need becomes my need. They are identifying with him through the good times, but also in the hard times. We haven't forgotten about you. We are with you. Verse 16 says this wasn't even a one-off gift. This wasn't just like a little token, flippant offering to make themselves feel better. Oh, have you heard about Paul? Oh, Paul thing, we better give him something. It wasn't like that. It wasn't just this one-off token thing. They repeatedly gave to Paul's needs. We see that as you read through Acts 16 and 17 as well. You see this pattern. In fact, for over a decade, this one church was supporting Paul financially you know, I'm, Paul, I'm sure Paul had this church very much in mind as he was encouraging the Corinthian church in their generosity. 2 Corinthians 8, he says this, he says, We want you to know about the grace of God that God has given the Macedonian churches. Philippi was a key Macedonian church here. In the terrible ordeal they suffered, so they were going through it themselves, their abundant joy and deep poverty overflowed into rich generosity. There's two phrases you don't see side by side very often. Abundant joy and deep poverty. You don't see those often, do you, together in the same sentence describing the same set of people. Why? Well, they too obviously had discovered the secret of being content in every situation and circumstance. 
And it overflowed. There was an output. There was a a sign, a symbol of what was going on in their hearts. It overflowed in rich generosity. He goes on, of their own account, they pleaded earnestly for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. Now, this word to share in the Greek is the same word that's also used in our Philippians 4 passage. It's this word koinonia which is often translated as fellowship, a sense of partnering together. You know, I I love that. Even though they were miles apart from Paul and he was behind bars, they were still able to fellowship very practically with him. Not that Paul asked for their help. He hadn't begged them for this thing. But they very practically met his needs anyway. Verse 18, I am amply supplied. Now I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. You know, I love the fact that we are vehicles of blessing. We can be God's vehicles of blessing. We can become somebody else's answer to prayer. I I just love that. They became an answer to prayer. He said, well, God's going to meet my needs. And guess how he did it? Through this church and through others as well. I love that. It is more about relationship. It's more about blessing necessarily than meeting the need. And when you do that, you are demonstrating this koinonia, this this sense of fellowship, of partnering together. In fact, just the other week, somebody gave us an unexpected financial gift. And it was amazing. It just it enabled us to, to take the kids out and we went out for a meal as a family. It was really unexpected and it was a real blessing. But more than just sort of meeting a need, it, was, it just spoke masses about a heart of love. It spoke about relationship, sense of we're with you in this. You know, Paul was blessed by the fact that this church in Philippi were demonstrating real partnership with him. You know, his gratitude was less about meeting the need and more about his relationship with them. More about this love, the fact that in their generosity, they were playing their part in his troubles. Speaks volumes. So Paul commends them. He says, you did good in sharing with my troubles. Kind of suggests that we can also not do good in our giving, doesn't it? And Jesus clearly taught the difference between good giving and bad giving. Still giving, but it has very little to do with the amounts we give and all to do with the heart that we give. We'll be looking a little bit more about that in a moment. But I've really been questioning my own financial giving, my own stewardship. You know, I just felt challenged to ask us as a church, In our financial giving, can we say we are truly partnering with one another for the gospel? Am I partnering with my brothers and sisters to see the kingdom of God advance in Sutton and beyond? I think it's really important to regularly ask us questions like that. What am I demonstrating in my giving? You know, I have to say I have been so encouraged over the years in the way people have partnered together as a church. We've partnered together to see this building become a reality. It's amazing. Real sense of mission together. 
It's been really a real blessing to see people continue to partner with us as one church as we support the mortgage, as we continue to develop this building. You know, we haven't had a gift day for a little while, but those gift days have been amazing. Just very humbling. A sense of, wow, we're together in this. You know, I said we've, we've had a bit of a breather from gift days. <laughs> Mainly once we moved in, it was like, okay, let's have a little break. But I felt really challenged, motivated again as I've been reading through particularly this passage, that actually I think we should probably have another one at some point, maybe in the autumn. A bit of advance warning for you there. Because there is something so powerful when we share the load together in our giving. We're demonstrating this koinonia, this partnership. So firstly, generosity of this church shows they were partnering with Paul in the gospel, even more than meeting his needs. And it was a massive sense of a source of strength and encouragement for Paul. But as we read on, did you notice what gave Paul greater joy than even them meeting his needs was that he knew that as a church, they were going to be blessed as a result of their generosity. Verse 17, not that I desire your gifts. You know, he's not being ungrateful. He's just kind of, kind of saying, remember, I'm the, I'm the guy who's always contented. You know, he's, what he's saying, though, is he's saying, what I desire is that more be credited to your account. Second key here is generosity demonstrates sound investment. You know, and maybe we don't talk a lot about that very much. It might be a reaction to the, I don't know, the so-called prosperity gospel, where it seems the sole motivation to give is to get, usually materially. You know, I'm just praying for my private jet into being. I claim it. I have it. See the leather seats. I receive it. You know, I have to say I admire people's faith. I don't want to knock people's faith. I love faith. But when it's directed in the right places, the, the trouble is people who tend to feed their desires very rarely get satisfied. We want God to ultimately feed our desires. That's why it's so important to remember the context of this passage, coming straight on the back of learning the secret of contentment, whether in times of, of need or times of plenty, lean or plenty. And the trouble is with this sort of prosperity teaching is that it, it more closely resembles for me the culture of the world, you know, being consumed with stuff, materialism, you know, being consumed with this more. The, tr- the truth is this more that we all desire is only found in Jesus Christ. And I think that's what's the message that's been coming thick and fast through this series The more that we truly all desire, it's only found in Jesus. But saying all that, there is this biblical principle that we see time and time again of storing up treasure in heaven. Literally, in our generosity, we are gaining heavenly interest on what we are investing. And that is a biblical principle. You know, Jesus taught on this very clearly. Matthew 6, you know, don't store up treasure on earth, store it up in heaven where moth and rust and thieves, you know, can't destroy and steal. Again, it goes back to what Joe was saying the other week and what Michaela reminded us of during our worship about having this heavenly perspective. We're on the home straight. 
This life is just, a, I think C.S. Lewis said, it's just like the front cover of an epic novel. Every page just gets better and better. It's just getting that heavenly perspective. We get so wrapped up in our need. Getting that heavenly perspective. We, we need to invest in the future. It's a bit of a rubbish illustration, but I've been following the, uh, the kind of the ups and downs of Elon Musk, the uh, Tesla CEO and SpaceX CEO, incredible guy. You know, he's this electric car manufacturer. Anyway, for Tesla, he is not receiving a salary. Actually, he is because it's law. He's receiving the minimum wage, but he doesn't draw from it. I mean, he's, he's thinking rich anyway. But he is not drawing a salary from Tesla. Why? Because he's wanting every penny invested in the vision that he has for this company. Every penny he has, you know. And the flip side is, of course, this company, his company has agreed to give him increasing stakes if he hits certain targets. The payoff is that if he does meet all these targets, he will, by a big margin, become the richest guy on the planet with an estimated worth of $184 billion. I mean, and that's just in Tesla. That's not including all his SpaceX and other projects. $184 billion. Thing is, those billions will fade. He can't take them with him <laughs> into the next life. He is preparing for the future, yes, but he's not preparing far enough ahead. He's not, in, he's not taking a single penny. He's like, I'm storing it up for the future. I've got this vision of the future, but it's not far enough ahead. We need to be storing up treasure in eternity. And we have an eternity in God's glory to look forward to. How often do we think about investing in our eternity? How does that influence the way we live our lives, and the generosity that we live our lives in? Paul was filled with joy because he knew this church was storing up treasure in heaven. And that thrilled him. But on top of that, this, this future promise, we also have a promise for the here and now. That as we give out of a heart of love and joy and partnership, right here in verse 19, he says, And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. That $184 billion is nothing in comparison to the riches of God's glory. Incredible riches. God will give us what we need at the right time, in the right season, as we learn to invest and be generous. What a promise. What a promise. You know, it's a biblical principle, Malachi 3.10, well-known verse again. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse where you get your spiritual food. Test me in this. God very rarely says that. Test me in this. See if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing there will not be enough room for it. That's a big statement, isn't it? Test me in this. You know, that is why we can give generously and joyfully and freely because we have this security. We have this assurance in God. 
That's why we can be so generous. 1 Timothy 6, 17 to 19, I love this passage, says, Command those who are rich in this present world, if you're in the UK, living in the UK, you are rich, not to be arrogant, nor put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. I mean, we see that every day, don't we? How uncertain wealth is. Facebook's just lost 54 billion overnight, just off its shares. I mean, there is no certainty in wealth. But put your hope in God, who, here we go again, richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. I love that again. It's for our enjoyment. Command them to do good and be rich in good deeds and be generous and willing to share. There's that koinonia word again. Be willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. There it is, that future investment, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Truly life. When we give, it demonstrates partnership. It also demonstrates very sound investment. But you know what? Above both those is the fact that it demonstrates true worship. True worship. Verse 18, he says, talking about the gifts that they've sent, they are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Pleasing to God. There is no higher purpose in our generosity, in our giving, than actually having it as an act of worship to God. Yes, it meets people's needs. Yes, it stores up treasure in heaven. But you know what? It's an act of worship, pleasing to God. You know, back in the Old Testament times, the the priests would make these burnt offerings. We're told the, the fragrance would go up to heaven, be a pleasing aroma And Paul is using this this imagery to show us we give freely of our money and our resources to help others. We become a, a pleasing aroma to God, a pleasing fragrance. Generosity reveals a heart of worship, reveals a heart of worship. It's why Jesus taught on money so much. You know, more than prayer and, 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 and faith even combined. It's probably the reason why we don't like teaching on money very much. Because it gets us right here, doesn't it? You know, it doesn't just get us in the pocket, it gets us in the heart. It really gets us in the heart. Again, referring back to last week, the biggest cause of discontent is when money is God. Without a doubt. And giving breaks that hold that money can have over us, that materialism can have over us. It breaks, it kind of, it fights against our natural greed and self-centeredness. It really fights against that. It combats fear as well, fear of lack. When we actively give and are actively generous, we are combating this natural fear of, what if I don't have enough? You know, the truth is, when we give, that is when we are demonstrating, God, I'm going to lean on you and I'm going to trust in you. That you truly are the God who will provide for my every need. 
You truly are a God who will give me everything for my enjoyment. Who am I going to believe? Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It really is all about the heart. It's not about percentages, pre or post tax giving. It's about a generous abandonment to God's grace. It's understanding that, you know, all that we have is God's anyway. It's not about percentages, which bit's God's, which bit's mine. It's all God's. When you come to him, you say, all that I have is yours. You know, when you think about that, giving becomes a real fun because actually we're giving away someone else's money. Have you thought about it like that? I don't know if you've ever given away someone else's money. It's quite fun. It's a lot easier than giving away your own. Think about it. Everything I have is God's. Hey, I could be really generous with this. It's not mine anyway. There's a freedom in it. There's a joy in it. We have the privilege of stewarding God's resources, the privilege of investing it well and seeing it flourish. But there is a flip side to being a pleasant aroma, and that is if this heart attitude is wrong, if our motivation is wrong, if we're giving out of duty, giving out to look good, if it's just become a religious thing, a habit, don't really think about it, give out of guilt, make yourself feel better, then there's a very sobering passage in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 13. God says he's talking to the Israelites who are basically doing these sacrifices, kind of honoring him with, his, with their mouths, but their hearts are far from him. Again, it's a heart attitude. He says this, stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. It's a stench. It's not an aroma. It's quite sobering, isn't it? It's like, wow, I've been really challenged by that recently. Has my giving become a bit meaningless? Am I actually doing it with the right motives? I mean, David once said, King David says, I will not offer my Lord sacrifices that cost me nothing. We can become very comfortable in our giving. Am I actually counting the cost? Can I honestly say I am excelling? in the grace of giving. Can I actually say that? You know, that's what we're encouraged to do in that 2 Corinthians 8 passage. The thing is that the church in Philippi, their giving was a beautiful fragrance to God because, again, as we see in that 2 Corinthians 8 passage, they counted the cost. They gave sacrificially, even out of their poverty. You think, What? And they weren't expecting anything in return. It's just like they were pleading. No, 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 we want to, we know where we're investing. We want to give, we want to bless, we want to partner with you. They gave freely instead out of this abundant joy that they had. They gave earnestly out of a heart of compassion, this desire to serve, desire to partner, knowing that God would provide for their every need according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. What a demonstration of trust and faith in God. And that produces joy, both in Paul's heart and their hearts. Someone once said, I've never met an unhappy, generous person. I don't know if you can think of somebody. Most generous people are pretty joyful. And I suppose if we believe the Bible, that shouldn't surprise us. I've never met an unhappy, generous person. 
You know, part of taking hold of this life that is truly life, as 1 Timothy 6 says, is learning to, to embrace the adventure and the freedom and the joy in living life generously. And the, yes, that is of our time, being generous in our love, being generous in our hospitality, being generous in our acceptance of people, and generous in our finances and the resources, generous with our homes, generous with our cars, living a life of generosity. It's no wonder then that Paul bursts into worship. Verse 20, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. It's kind of like a mini doxology, isn't it? He just, he's so full of the joy of the Lord. He's so full of assurance that God will meet not just his needs, but the needs of the church. He's so full of gratitude that, that the only appropriate response is worship. God, you are amazing. Be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. So as we come to the end of our series, can I encourage us as a church, let us never move on from finding our joy in God. You know, it's our distinctive, it's our inheritance, and it's worth fighting for. We've said over this, this series that this world tends to suck life out of us very easily. And we need to fight for joy. We need to look for it in the right places. You know, Paul knew what it was like to have this joy welling up on, on the inside of him through the Holy Spirit. And we can look to his example. We can also look, to, of course, to the example of Jesus Christ. You know, today is Palm Sunday, the day Jesus rode into Jerusalem, hearing the, the cheers of the crowds, but also knowing that in a few days, many of those same voices will be shouting out, crucify him. He knew that. You know, here he was being hailed as Israel's king, coming to snatch power out of the Romans, and yet... There he was, wobbling about on a, on a colt of a donkey, heading for a cross. Such humility, total humility. He was totally sovereign. He was and is the King of kings, Lord of lords. He was and is totally in control over everything. And there he was, heading for a cross. Totally selfless. Totally selfless. What an example. He gave everything. Talking about living a generous life. Just reminded of that French police officer in South France where they had that terrorist attack. I don't know if you've been looking at the story. He tragically died, um, I think it was yesterday. But he arranged for his life to be swapped for the last remaining, um, what's the word? Hostage, thank you. I mean, that is incredible, isn't it? I will swap my place with her. And he died. He gave his life as a result. Generous living. But Jesus gave his life while we were still enemies of him while we were still sinners. And we're told in Hebrews 12, verse 2, 
It was because of the joy set before him that he endured the cross, scorning its shame. It was joy that led him to the cross. It was joy that enabled him to see beyond the cross. Joy of being obedient to his father. Joy of of knowing that he will be seated at the right hand the throne of God. Joy in knowing that that actually what looked like utter shame and defeat was in fact the place of ultimate decisive victory over sin and death and hell, over guilt and shame. It was the joy of seeing multitudes from every tribe and nation and tongue being brought out of death and into life and into relationship with him. It was joy. And again, in that Hebrews 12, 2 verse, it says that we are told to run this race called life by keeping our eyes fixed on him. Fixed on him. We can be generous because he gave everything for us. You know, and as he fills our gaze, not our problems, not our lacks, not our needs, as he fills our gaze, as he fills our desires, so his, his, his love and his strength and his joy fills our hearts through the Holy Spirit. It's all of his grace. It's all of his grace. That's how Paul starts this letter and how he now ends. After sending final greetings, again, just generous with his love, he says, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen.